All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and if you'll stand again as I read, we're going to read the uh, verses 13 or 3 through uh, 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Father, as we come before you with your word, as we come to your word, we pray the prayer of the psalmist. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. God, please, Open our eyes, open our minds, enlighten us to truth, and may we be changed. May we not be the same, changed forever to love Christ, to love God, to love holiness, righteousness, and truth. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're kind of picking up on this series in Ephesians, and it's been probably four weeks or so since we've been here, three or four. Um, and the, the messages are, have been recorded. You can go back and listen to them. But we find ourselves really focused on verses three, well, three through six. And in my reading, I came across this this man says, one of the funniest cartoons I ever saw showed a pompous lawyer, no offense to the lawyers out here, reading a client's last will and testament to a group of greedy relatives. The caption read, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. <laughs> it goes on to say, when Jesus Christ wrote his last will and testament for his church, he made it possible for us to share his spiritual riches. Instead of spending it all, Jesus Christ paid it all 
right? His death on the cross and his resurrection made it possible for our salvation. He wrote us into his will, then he died, so the will would be in force. Then he rose again, that he might become the heavenly advocate, lawyer, to make sure the terms of the will were correctly followed. So in this long sentence, one of the longest in the Bible that we just read, Paul names just a few of the blessings that make up our spiritual wealth. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. We're rich. We're rich in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So starting here in verse 4, Paul begins to list for his readers these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. In Christ, that he, in the heavenly places in Christ that he just spoke of in verse 3. The first blessing Paul points to is the blessing of God's gracious choice of his saints. Just as he chose us in Christ in the heavenly places. So what does Paul mean by saying he chose us. How are his readers supposed to understand that statement? What exactly is the apostle wanting to communicate to those um, he's writing to by saying, just as he chose us? So the just as is an antecedent. Go back to verse three, right? Paul's statement points directly back to who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Brothers and sisters, God chose us in the heavenly places in Christ. He didn't confer with humans because humans weren't here. He didn't take his cue from nature. Decision made in the heavenly places in Christ. God made his decision in the heavenly places. God made his decision in Christ. God made his decision before time and creation. God made his decision in holiness. That's why we're holy, connected, connected to God. Made his decision that we would be holy and blameless. So let's look at some of the scriptures um, that support this idea. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Moses, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we get a scene where the people are confessing their sin. Corporately, they're worshiping God. And some of the Levites were gathered and they were standing on a platform and they were saying, and if you want to follow along, it's Nehemiah 9, verses 5 through 7. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth 
and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Side note, Abram from Ur of the Chaldees was a moon worshiper. He didn't know God. Within this glorious corporate confession of sin, here in Nehemiah, and within this glorious corporate worship session of God's people, among these grand and glorious confessions that God alone is God, God alone is the creator of everything, God alone is sovereign, the Levites confess God alone has chosen his people. Psalm 65, verse 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. Isn't that a wonderful psalm? How blessed is the one whom you choose and cause to, um, to dwell in your courts. Bring near. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the power to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 15, 16, it doesn't get much clearer than this statement. You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you. In Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 48, the scene is Paul and Barnabas. They're being ridiculed by the Jews, um, opposed by the Jewish leaders. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. This is there in Antioch. So Gentiles are around as well. Speaking to them, he says, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Romans chapter 9. Couldn't get away from that one. Verses 10 through 16. And not only this, this is in the middle of Paul's argument, but here we go. But there was Rebecca also. When she conceived twins by one man, our father, our father Isaac, for, through, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Strongest words that can be used right here. May it never be, God forbid. Injustice with God? 
No. The fairness doctrine, doctrine doesn't fly. Will not the judge of the whole earth do right? What is the answer? Yes. Yes and amen. There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, God forbid, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Brothers and sisters, we have been blessed by God, blessed with the heavenly spiritual blessing of God, who chose us in the heavenly places in Christ. However, the spiritual blessing's been under attack. Maybe some of you have heard of a man named Pelagius. Born in AD 360, died in AD 420. Pelagius was a theologian who advocated for free will and asceticism. Asceticism was that heresy that attacked the first century church about the harsh treatment of the body. They used to whip their backs with these chains and do all kinds of things, trying to appease God or earn a way into God's favor. He was accused by Augustine and others of denying the need for divine aid and performing good works. They understood him, Augustine and others, understood Pelagius to have said that only the only grace necessary for oh, the only grace necessary was the declaration of the law humans were not wounded by adam's sin and were perfectly able to fulfill the law without divine aid pelagius denied augustine's theory of original sin which is biblical it's not augustine's theory he got it from the bible Adherents of Pelagius cited Deuteronomy 24.16 to support, in support of their position. And Deuteronomy 24.16 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Pelagius was declared a heretic by the Council of Ephesus in 431, AD 431. His interpretation of a doctrine of free will became known as Pelagianism. Let me read you one other quote here from a guy named William Cunningham. And this comes from a, a work called The Pelagian Controversy. There are strong and powerful tendencies of various kinds that lead men to underrate the injurious effects of the fall upon their moral nature and the consequent necessity of divine grace for their renovation. And on this account, Pelagian views, more or less fully developed, have prevailed very extensively in almost every age of the church. Generally, they have assumed somewhat of a philosophic dress and have prevailed most among those who have thought themselves entitled to the character of rational Christians and profess to be very zealous for the interests of morality and virtue. It's a heresy. What does the Bible say about our condition? Turn to, to uh, Romans chapter 3. Let's read 
Romans 3, we're going to read 10 through 18. It's heretical because it's against Scripture. It's a man's notion, not God's truth. Verse 10, as it is written, the authorities established right out of the gate. There is none righteous. And by the way, Paul is picking up this truth from Psalm 14 and maybe other portions of Scripture. But he quotes Psalm 14. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of, of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths in the path of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is the condition of every human who has ever lived or who will ever live, according to the scripture. With the exception of Christ, of course. For, but, you know, you look at this condition of humans and you think, well, why would God sacrifice his son to save me or you or anyone for reasons fully known only to the Godhead, right? God rescued and redeemed for himself a ransomed humanity, which he chose in eternity past for his own glory, purpose, and pleasure. So we're back at the believer's bank. We're cashing in on a blessing. God chose us. If you're a Christian here this morning, God chose you and recorded your name in his book before he created. That's what the scripture says. Isn't that that's staggering? That is just, to me, it's staggering. It's, it's no wonder why Paul puts this fact, he chose us at the top of the list. of these spiritual blessings. It's amazing grace, amazing grace. Romans 5, verses six through eight. For a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mentioned last time um, this quote. I want to emphasize it again. But there in uh, Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. So listen to this quote. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Um, every time I quote the quote, I'm like, what? Because we're finite. We have to have a beginning. We have to have an end. That's how we think. But, you know, the first verse of the Bible is the 
hardest one, right? In the beginning, God. Where'd God come from? Where did it start? The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Your hardest voice, a 19th century Dutch American theologian. And he based that statement on Jeremiah 31 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's love is an everlasting love, no start, no end. And Paul picks up the notion in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, there it is again, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This was in the mind of God before he created. We were in the mind of God, each one. Staggering. So the Apostle Paul tells us of our first spiritual blessing, which is God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then you look at verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless, which is actually a spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Because loved ones, if we're not holy and blameless, we're condemned. We're condemned. And it's, your holiness isn't coming by virtue of what you're doing. Your holiness is coming by virtue of what he did which is a grace and a blessing and a mercy and a gift. We're holy because he's holy. I talked about this last time, and you can go back and listen to that message, but let me just give you a couple of verses. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that is more of a promise than a command. Because it's anchored and finds its fulfillment in the covenant promises of God, like Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. What happens? The rock comes out. The tender heart goes in, and I will cause them to walk in my way and keep all my commandments. What is the way? What's it look like? Jesus Christ walked on this earth loving his Father, honoring his Father, doing what his Father told him. That's what the way looks like. We do the same thing. That's why the gospel was preached, according to 1 Peter 4, 6, that we might live in the Spirit the way God does. Blameless. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's another spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places in Christ. This was done by God. <clears throat> Next, he tells his readers at the end of verse 4 that they have received the spiritual blessing of God's love. Depending on your translation, uh, in love could be included if you're reading King James, but in the NASB and ESV, and I think in the New King James, it's um, there's a period and then in love, right? Just side note. But the believer has received the love of God in Christ and can now love God and others with the love of God through Christ. It's a spiritual blessing. We have God's love. We can't, you know, work that up ourselves. It's a gift. Here's a, a verse you probably never have heard before. It's so obscure. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave his love. It's a spiritual blessing. First John chapter 4. Verses four or seven through eleven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is a, is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested or made known in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the pleasing attorney for our sins. Right? What love? Didn't we need one? Didn't we need a propitiation? We needed a propitiation. We're sinners standing before the court of a holy God. We need love. Beloved, if God so loved us, here it comes. So let us also love one another. Okay, who needs the Holy Spirit's help now? Right? Amen. Amen. I'm... I'm Give me, I mean, not me, I'm just saying, who, who can love like God, apart from God? Nobody, no one. One man said this, lost love to man, or I'm sorry, love lost to man by the fall, but restored by redemption is the root, fruit, and sum of all holiness. Holiness and love, love and holiness. They're inextricably linked. They're connected. He based that comment on Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, wonderful. <laughs> got to go for the, you know, right? Therefore, you got to look, see what it's there for. But 5, because of all this rich doctrine and this, these wonderful truths, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. So love looks sacrificial. And we know as husbands, how are we supposed to love our wives? We're supposed to lay our lives down for her. Why? Because Christ did that for the church. Again, oh God, help me. Help me, Lord. I'm not confused about the, the uh, instruction. I'm just desperate because God isn't just talking to hear himself talk. These aren't platitudes. This is truth. This is truth. God help us. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Also inspired this man to write what I just wrote about um, a restored, you know, love being restored by redemption. It's the root, fruit, and sum of all holiness. First Thessalonians 3. Verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Do you see the connection? Love and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God gave us the spiritual blessing of his love that we might love God and love others without blame, displaying his holiness. The next spiritual blessing that Paul identifies to his reader is predestination. Predestination. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us. He predestined us to adoption. Parizzo probably not said right, but to predetermine in the Greek, to predetermine, decide beforehand. And there's limit, limit in the decision. One definition says this, this rare and late word in the New Testament, in the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament sense to foreordain is parallel to to foreknow in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. God has ordained everything in salvation history with Christ as the goal. God has ordained everything in salvation history with Christ as the goal. Hence, Herod, Pilate, and the Gentiles can only do what God has predetermined, Acts chapter 4, remember that scene. Herein lies the hidden wisdom of God which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, this hidden wisdom. Divine sonship in Christ is the goal of God's ordaining. Divine sonship in Christ is the goal of God's ordaining. Our assurance of, in, of inheritance rests on it. Predestination. He predestined us to adoption. Let me read this other quote because there's confusion around these words, chosen, predestined, a lot of comment, many, many volumes written and some, you know, arguments in our church history. But one commentator put it this way, having predestined us, God's choice of us in Christ was for a purpose that is eternal, 
unto the adoption of children. The word translated adoption of children is used five times in the New Testament, three times in Romans, once in Galatians, and then once here in Ephesians. It refers to our place, our being placed in the position of sons. It is not the modern idea of adoption. He's talking about predestination and adoption. It's not our modern idea of adoption, but rather the placing of a child in the position of adult sonship. God's purpose is that all believers should be adult sons in his family in which Christ is the firstborn. He references Romans 8, 29. According to the good pleasure of his will, any attempt to base God's election and predestination upon human merit, whether foreknown or otherwise, is unscriptural and futile. The cause of God's choice of us is not to be found in us, but in him alone. The will of God is the determining factor. Titus chapter 3, let's look at a verse to support that comment. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and re renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We know him well, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the, what's the word? Gift. It is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his poema, God's beautiful thought, his flowing thought. We're his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, we go again, from eternity past, so that we would walk in them. The good works that God has prepared, we're to walk in. Is the Christian life um, about good works? <laughs> Absolutely. It's all about good works. But just walking in the good works that God prepared, I'm not earning anything. Jesus paid it all. So I'm not buying anything. I'm evidencing that I belong to him. Does that make sense? Amen. Christianity is not declared it is evidenced. There are many, many people who declare their Christianity, but their lives don't support it. We are called to bear fruit. The fruit is for God, but we get to see it. Another man said this, here we meet that misunderstood word predestination. This word, as it is used in the Bible, refers primarily to what God does for saved people. The word simply means to ordain beforehand or predetermine. Election seems to refer to people. 
While predestination refers to purposes, the events connected with the crucifixion of Christ were predestined, Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. God has predestined our adoption. We see that here in Ephesians 1, 5. And our conformity to Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. As well as our future inheritance, Ephesians 1, 11. Adoption has a dual meaning, both present and future. You do not get into God's family by adoption. You get into his family by regeneration, the new birth. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again. And Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing in the family. Why does he do this? So that we might immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual wealth. A baby cannot legally use this inheritance, but an, an adult son can and should. This means that you do not have to wait until you're an old saint before you claim your riches in Christ. Isn't that good? So let's support that comment. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4, and he references this. And let's read verses 4. I'm sorry, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Now I say, Paul speaking, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. Note that. Although he is owner of everything, child and slave, no difference. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Loved ones, do you understand? Jesus cries out to his father, Abba, Father, as a son. We do the very same thing. We're sons. We cry out to God, Abba. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So a slave and an infant, small child, kind of linked up to be kind of the same in verse one, right? If we don't grow, we don't have the rights. I think is the inference there. But we are sons through adoption as Christians, and we are adult sons and have all the rights and privileges of Christ as a son. That's the point. We're not slaves, 
We're not infants. We're adult sons through adoption, which is what Christ has done. So we've been born again. And because we've been born again, we've been predestined by God to be adult sons, to receive all the rights and privileges of Christ, our brother. The chosen of God have been predestined by God for adoption as sons to God in order that we may, through faith, live the life of the Son of God who accomplished all the purposes of God. Believers have been chosen, predestined, and adopted by God that we might live the life that Christ lives. Galatians 2.20, familiar verse. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our identity is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Through the adoption of sons, we inherit sonship with Christ, with all the riches and privileges that belong to Christ, the Son of God. We are co-heirs. Joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That's clear language. If you're being led by the Spirit of God, you're a son. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There it is again. Christ cries out, Abba. We cry out, Abba, because we are sons through adoption. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class. The Spirit of God bears witness, testifies, says, yes, you belong, you're a Christian. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And that's an important point, obviously. Just a quick comment about the suffering. Christ suffered because he was Christ. And what did he say to his disciples? If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. It's important that we see that we're suffering for the gospel. I'm not going to go out and look for suffering, but I want to proclaim the gospel. And as a result, I will suffer with Christ, as will you, as our brothers and sisters are around the world. It's a point of rejoicing. It's a proof that we belong to Christ. And God lives in two places, according to Isaiah 57, 15. God dwells in the high and holy place and with the broken, contrite, and humble. He is near the suffering. And that's why Peter says we can rejoice. When we see we have this faith, it's a gift. And we belong. It's a point of rejoicing. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. One happens, so does the other. Romans 8, just look down the page there, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated, or predestined, I'm sorry, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The whole point is that we are with God. God made us. He rescued us to be with him, to live his life, to enjoy God. Do you realize, do we realize how blessed we are? God has chosen a people for himself. May the Lord make it real to us in our daily living that I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your life, how you live, what you think, what you speak, your emotion, your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, again, this idea that we are with Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God uh, will be of God and not from ourselves. The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. And so the point we tend to look away from God and look to ourselves. It's always there. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the point. And James, <laughs> James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? We're in Christ. That's our position. We're sons. And we're in Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ in God, even though we see the physical what's going on right here right now. But that truth is true. I want to read you two more verses here out of Revelation, Revelation 3, verse 21. And this is something to look forward to future. He who overcomes, Revelation 3, 21, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Our destiny. Look at Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. The spiritual blessing of being adopted, placed as a son. It's an eternal relationship with our Father. Through the adoption of sons, we have all the rights and privileges. So let's review these blessings. God chose us in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He made us holy and blameless before him in Christ. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. All of which he did, look again at uh, Ephesians 1.5, according to the kind intention of his will. Our God is kind. He is loving, merciful, generous, compassionate. Read Psalm 103. Don't forget the benefits. And he deals like a father deals with a small child, so our father has compassion. You know what that's like if you've been a father or a mother. I miss those days. <laughs> My kids grew up. Of course, I got grandkids. Thank God. Um, <clears throat> according to the kind intention of his will. So we talked a little bit about this last time as well, the gracious will of God. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke 10, 21, in that same hour. So what's happening here is the 70 had gone out. Jesus sent them out, and they came back rejoicing. Verse 21, in that same hour, he greatly rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is the will of God that we're saved. Seems like an obvious thing to say, but we're talking about his heart, what he wants to do. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 32. So tender, so loving, so kind. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Get a glimpse of the heart of God. So what is the purpose the reason for all these spiritual blessings. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll close with this. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's why. Why are you saved? Why am I saved? It's a... Adoration 
in a praise of the grace and glory of our God, which we will stand before him with the 24 and the four and the rest of the heavenly host and worship God because he saved us in spite of our sin. He paid so we could be with him. How should we live? What sort of persons ought we to be? Peter said that in view of the, the coming destruction, but it's a fair question in light of what Christ has done for us and what the Father has done for us. We should love God supremely and we should love each other, which are the two commandments, right? Isaiah 43, 21. So again, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I form, God speaking, for myself will declare my praise. That's what, <laughs> wow. We're gonna praise him because he's gonna make sure we do. And what's amazing is, don't you find this to be true? I want to praise God. I didn't before, but the more I know him, the more I want to. I want to praise God. I want to love him. I want to commit to him my aches and pains and problems and distresses, knowing that he's God, and then worship him and enter into the in a Trinitarian, intra-Trinitarian worship session. I want, I want to be there, worshiping God. Isaiah 63, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Jesus quoted this. Remember, he was there and he stood up in the synagogue and he read these verses. Today, they are fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that they, that, that he may be glorified. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 15. For all these things, all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Salvation, our salvation abounds to the glory of God. When we proclaim the gospel, someone gets saved, that abounds to the glory of God. Every time we preach and proclaim, it abounds to the glory of God. so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people, we're evidence of that. I mean, this is, you know, back in Paul's day, <clears throat> and more and more people have been saved. 
giving thanks to abound to the glory of God. So the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Church, beloved of God in Christ, God saved us to the praise of the glory of his grace. Our spiritual blessings are his choosing, his predestination that we would become sons, his love. God wants us to be full of joy and confident, strong in the faith, seeking God for his glory and our good. May we do it. Praise his holy, glorious, magnificent, most gracious name. Father, thank you. What grace. <laughs> you have fed us this morning because you love us. You have called us, chosen us, placed us, adopted us. And we, Lord, are thankful. Again, Lord, we pray that you would establish your word to us that it might produce reverence for you. Forgive us of our sins. Fill us with your spirit. Cause us to love you supremely and to love your people. We ask for your help in living the Christian life. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you again for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>